Hello, and welcome to Need to Know, your weekly investment podcast brought to you by the experts at Coots. I'm Sarah Muir, and I'm joined as always by Alan Higgins. And joining us this week, making his debut on Need to Know, is one of Coots' trading and execution team, James Stringer. Welcome, James. Hey, Sarah. Hi there. Hi, Alan. Okay, so we'll be looking ahead uh, to the three things investors need to know. That might be for the week ahead, but we also focus perhaps a little bit more nowadays on sort of grander, sort of longer term themes. But we are going to sort of slightly break with our kind of more recent rule. And we are going to talk about some of the data. But the general rule is when we have a guest on, you either have one or two topics and Alan has what's left. So, um, well, I don't know, Alan, because this was sort of a topic that we agreed on. And then we invited James on because we wanted to get a, an expert rather than have us waffling about it. So perhaps <laughs> let's start with you, Alan. What were the three? What are the three things we're going to look at this week? So, yeah, so the three things I think we could have a look at is a a bit of a follow on on this from Francesca's excellent question about the impact of passive flows, index orientated flows versus flows in an active fund manager. We did cover that last week, didn't we, Sarah? We did. But but with James, we're going to take it to the next level um, and um, talk about how he sees it when the likes of Coots trades an ETF, how it gets traded and how you see that immediacy of the market action, which you don't see in an active fund. So that, and um, you noticed um, change in settlement for US stocks Mm. coming up. I think it'd be good to comment on that. So a little bit of a trading update. And from me, um, a bit like, you you remember when we had the Jay Powell uh, pivot and we said, that's so dramatic, we have to talk about it. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the non-farm payroll. We we haven't done that for a year, for about a year. I'll put try to put it in a wider context of the US yeah. economy, but it was an extraordinary number. And then um, uh, where we're going wrong, um, should, uh, this is uh, nothing to do with Coots Investment Management, where I am going wrong in the sense that is, um, is active investing coming back in the US? No, it's becoming very narrow again. The Magnificent mm. Seven, or rather than the Famous Five, are powering the US market higher. So a little chat about that again and, and where it stands, because I, 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 in particular, I want to say that the, the market, again, the global equity market is broader than people uh, think about. But um, you wanted to talk about China, didn't you? Because we got a lot of feedback from from, from, um, from people on uh, LinkedIn about China, didn't we? We did. And I noted, well, because Farhad, uh, the CIO, was, was on last week. And, and one of his things he was talking about was China, unloved and cheap. Um, but I think, I mean, and you were had quite, you had some concerns about, you know, well, corporate governance, one of the big ones. But I noticed actually today in the FT, we've seen a, a surge after Beijing has unveiled more sort of state-led buying. Any thoughts on that? Are we, are we going to see a resurgence of China? I mean, are people going to overlook some of those concerns that you have? So uh, good for a bounce. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And also they've changed the regulator. Uh, in terms of the Chinese stock. So they really are concerned. You can see that. And you're right, we have had a, a, a reasonable bounce. We're still down some 3% in China, some 6% in uh, in Hong Kong, um, but off the bottom and good for a bounce. For me, look, um, if they if they could really address corporate governance, I think China would be an absolute steal. Um but that's a big discussion. But um, it is interesting is that um, I think alongside property, uh, China is where we seem to get the most comments, isn't it, Sarah? Yeah, 
It is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure we co- we'll be definitely be coming back to this. Okay, James, well, before we get on to the thing I wanted to talk about, which was this this US shifting to shorter settlement dates, perhaps just mm. for those that don't know you, very brief introduction of who you are and how you came to be working on the trading desk at Coots. Of course, of course. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. Um, in terms of where I've come from, I think I think I've been very fortunate. Finding something you love doing is undoubtedly a tricky task. Uh, but I think I was blessed with quite a what I would call an organic journey here. I grew up in a very sleepy town on the south coast. There wasn't a lot going on. Uh, it was beautiful, but not a particularly inspirational place to be. Um, and like a lot of young people, I was never sure what I wanted to do. Everyone gets asked when you're 16 or 18 what you want to do when you grow up. And I knew I was I knew I was fairly good at mathematics. But apart from that, I decided to keep my options pretty broad. So I, I mm. started off, I did my undergraduate in business and I thought, well, you know what, let's let's do this. And while I'm there, I can hope to find some kind of spark or something I was passionate about. And uh, indeed, it worked. Uh, of everything that was covered, I discovered economics and uh, I can imagine some of our listeners grimacing a little bit here, but uh, but do hear me out. I know it's not for everyone, and some people call it the dismal science, but um, as a naturally curious person, I found that it helped explain how the world works on so many mm. levels. Yeah. Uh, government and central bank policy, business strategy, you know, down to people what people choose in the supermarket. So I just really fell in love with the subject. I went on to do it as a master's. And uh, there we sort of got into a bit more of the nitty gritty of corporate finance and capital markets. And my interest just really took off. I decided Mm. this is for me. Um, And indeed, I went on to get my first position at a tiny little asset manager, small little sort of family office outfit, helping predominantly with their trading. Yeah. And uh, and the rest is history. I've gradually kind of worked my way up from there. Surprisingly, (laughs) I couldn't believe this when I looked it up the other day. This will be my 10th year. Doing, wow. uh, doing this in the you industry. don't look old enough james <laughs> that's very kind of you but it it's really has whizzed by and i've been very fortunate i've worked with some fantastic firms uh, i've met some fantastic people uh had a lot of help getting all my professional qualifications making friends across the industry it's actually to people's surprise quite a warm tight-knit community the traders of london there's there's a lot okay. less of us than you think and after a while, you see the same faces over and over again at the conferences and at the uh, at the, at the days. It, it's yeah. a really lovely place to be. And I've I've learned a lot and obviously seen so many changes over this decade. And I don't just mean in terms of sort of changes in the market, the short and long cycles and, and what they go through, but also structurally in just 10 years, the way the markets are put together, how people react within them, how people interact with each other. And obviously the greater use of technology and automation. Uh, there's certainly been a lot to keep me busy and to keep me interested. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you for that, James. Okay, well, then let's kick off then with your first topic. We wanted to get an expert in to talk about this. This is, I read this recently, US shifting to shorter settlement mm-hmm. dates or shorter settlement cycle, T plus one. I think perhaps what would be interesting would be, first of all, for those, I mean, we've got a lot of listeners who are experts and will know all about this and will understand this, but for those that perhaps listening that don't understand T plus one, T plus two, what does that mean? Perhaps just very quickly explain to us what we mean, first of all, before we talk about the implications if the US does adopt this policy. Of course, of course. Well, whatever whatever uh, sort of the experience of the listener here, I think this is a very difficult thing to ignore. It's one of the really big stories at the moment out there. 
everyone would have seen this scattered across the headlines in the sector. The Financial Times actually did a, a good article on it recently. But in terms of what it actually means, to put it into some, to, some actual context for people, most major world markets currently operate on a T plus two basis. And what mm -hmm. this means is the T quite literally represents the trade date and yeah. the number, how many business days after that trade date, the actual settlement will occur. So the actual agreed exchange of the assets for cash. So a movement from T2 to T1 would essentially mean settling the next business day. So mm. lowering the amount of days between when you agree that trade and when, when it settles. So lowering the amount of assets and cash across the market, which are said to be in transit, essentially yeah. halving the amount of outstanding orders waiting to complete. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is, and what's perhaps generated a lot of interest, is the fact that the US would be basically going alone doing this, wouldn't they? Because the rest of Europe adopts, has T plus two. Are there any other... Are there any other regions that have a longer or shorter settlement period? So at the moment, most of the most of the uh, developed world markets are on T plus two. So it right. really would be the case that the US is breaking away in this mm. sector. And that there's a lot of pros and cons about them doing this. I, I mean, despite it being a seemingly simple concept on paper, there's a reason why this has provoked much discussion. So yeah. the main upsides, I think, are quite obvious. So first of all, the speed, for, for one. Um, so if you think clients will be able to liquidate and buy into US investments faster, so we could place mm. a sale in, say, their Tesla or their Google shares, and the cash would hit their account the following day rather than the day after that. Yeah. Um, so, so really a benefit for short-term cash management. And then this is the same for institutions as well as funds, so US mutual funds. Um you know, this could be the case that U.S. mutual funds that mostly operate on a T plus three basis or T plus four basis, if the underlying assets they're trading can then be bought or sold faster, then the whole fund subscription mm. and redemption schedule can be following suit and knocking a day off their timeframes. But we'll, we'll get onto funds a little bit more a bit mm. later. In terms still of the, of the obvious benefits, the second one after speed is risk reduction. Yeah. So, most transactions these days, the vast majority, are settled by what's called delivery versus payment, or DVP. And yeah. that's basically a zesty way of saying you swap the cash and the assets at the same time. So that avoids anyone being exposed, anyone being left with empty hands. Um, but it is still the case, and you still must consider that as settlements are pending in the market, you have a great reliance on the other side to adhere to what's actually been agreed at the point of trade. Yeah. So... If you think you've got a broker, you've done a hundred trades with them that are waiting to settle. If, you know, God forbid, it doesn't happen very often, but that broker folds, that broker goes kaput. Yeah. All of a sudden, you've got a hundred trades that you've got to scrub out and go back to the drawing board. And mm. it could be the case that you get better, you get worse prices than were agreed, but essentially you get knocked back a couple of steps. And if you've got very large orders which are pending, if you've got things that uh, if you're rebalancing some large portfolios and things, it could cause a bit of havoc there. So reducing that amount, um, that amount of exposure is still very useful for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and what, what about the netting? Because I'd read something about netting. I didn't fully understand what that. How does this shift to T plus one impact netting? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And perhaps explain what we mean by netting. Ah, so well, when we're getting into the downsides, so we talked about the upsides. When we're getting into the downsides, 
netting is one of those areas that might be affected. So netting is basically at the end of the day, you look at all your match trades with each one of your counterparties and you roughly work out, you know, how much do I owe them? How much do they owe me? What's the difference? So say if you've done a load of buys with a broker and a load of sells with them, at the end of the day, you do the calculations and you're like, right, they owe me X amount of money. And when it comes to doing the actual settlement the following day, then it can be the case that the assets and the cash are swapped in one go. You don't have to do loads of little individual cash transactions. Yeah. So netting is a really useful tool. And where it might be an issue, where we're now going to have this this the harmonization i guess in the market you know we're only talking about the us at the moment moving mm-hmm. into uh moving into t plus one if the eu they're talking about following suit but nothing concrete yet the same with the uk if these markets are left behind it's going to be the case that you yourself or a portfolio manager could be doing lots of trades moving in and out of different positions they're now going to have to start to think a little bit more about their about their cash coverage. They're going to need to think a little bit more. Well, wow, the US is settling T plus one on these. If I'm if I'm selling out of something European and buying into something American, I've now got a little bit of time where potentially I could be out of the market, or potentially I'm going to be called mm. upon for some cash that I'm going to have to put by. So this is where these markets getting out of sync might start to be might start to be a bit of an issue. Yeah, Alan, I got a quick question for you. Sorry sorry to interrupt. Quick question for you, Alan. Is this going to make American markets even more attractive to invest in, this T plus one? James is nodding vigorously there. I would say at the margin, James, I hear what you're saying. But really, I mean, okay, there's traders and investors. I guess I side more with investors taking a longer term view. T plus one or T plus two, does it really matter? But I think, James, you're making a really interesting point. I'm a global equity manager. I'm switching between European stocks, I don't know, Japanese stocks, Asian stocks and US stocks. And I have to think, oh, no, um, I've just bought uh, more Microsoft T plus one. Uh, God, my, my Nestle shares only settle T plus two. How am I going to find the cash? I need to borrow it. Or I need to ring up friendly James and James, which I used to do. <laughs> Could you extend settlement from T plus one to T plus two, which gets gets around the purpose? So, so James, tell me why you think, it's, you think it's, it is going to make US markets more attractive. Well, some of the things I've seen over the last year or so, we've seen in the market a lot of companies which have been dual-listed, taking away their listings in Europe. So say, for example, if you've got a listing in two different places, you're paying for that listing. If you've got it in the US and you've got it in Europe, the liquidity in Europe has been so meager compared to compared to the US. We've actually seen some big European names, some big European companies go to list for the first time and only list in the US. A great mm. example is Arm Holdings. So Arm Holdings, you know, a big uh, UK chip maker, They've done their. They've just done their primary listing in the U.S., which is a big disappointment uh, for us over here. But that's where the liquidity already is, and I think it's it's very much sort of a one-directional movement at the moment. All the liquidity of the world is getting pushed across the pond. There, anything like this, you know, you think, well, I can be trading this asset in Europe and taking longer to move in and out of it, or I could be trading it in the U.S. faster. I think that's going to be pushing that direction of travel a little bit quicker. 
Yeah, I guess it, it sounds from what you're saying, then it sounds almost inevitable that assuming the US goes ahead with this, and I think that is a it's a it's a given, isn't it, that probably Europe will have to follow suit at some point. I think it's very likely. I think it's very likely. And I'm actually surprised that the UK, um, that the Financial Conduct Authority has been so quiet on this, because this could have been a real opportunity for us to uh, for us to really do something here, for us to really catch up and show how how nimble and quick we are, like we mm. like to we like to think we are over this side. You know, the whole point in in reducing a lot of the legislation post post Brexit is getting to be this more nimble, uh, quick moving, kind of quick adapting kind of market. And I think this would have been a really good example of how we could have done that and how we could have led the pack on this side of the world. But uh, as I say, we haven't really seen anything tangible as yet. A bit of discussion, a couple of papers, but no kind of action plan. Yeah. Okay. So to summarise then, before we get on to the next bit that we wanted to ask you about. So then we've got this. So the US is shifting to T plus one. That means basically that you settle one day after the trade. Your rest of Europe is on or Europe and the UK is on T plus two. So we're going to perhaps get potentially a little bit of a mismatch there. The idea, I guess, behind the adopting T plus one is that it, there is a reduction in counterparty risk. Um, and But there are some challenges there if you're trading across different markets and you've got you might be selling something that settles at t plus two and buying something that settles at t plus one and there's going to be potentially a mismatch there all right then alan over to you because you wanted to talk to james about because we were, we were talking a lot francesca who we, we, we had a question from her last week about the impact of um passive investing uh on on markets and we were talking about sort of market makers and how they hedge and you you had some sort of questions for james didn't you yeah so james i just why don't you just uh, walk us through so um why don't we do it as, as a purchase so coots or anyone it's not just about coots coots buys 200 million of i'll give you two scenarios 200 million of s p 500 so the main us index etfs or 200 million of a european small cap etf so you've got this order to do in the market because the ETFs trade on exchange is index exposure. Um, how will you approach it? And especially how will the dealers approach it? And then we'll have a discussion about how it's because the, the, the main premise I set out last week is how immediate it is in terms of impact on the market. Of course, of course. Well, going back to what I was saying earlier, the rise of ETFs, particularly along the last few years, has been astronomical. Um and a lot of people haven't really thought about how these work in the background. And these are these are two great examples to look at. I mean, the way in which an ETF market maker provides you with a price is often a bit of a, a bit of cloak and dagger kind of work. So it is the case that they're providing you a price based on a, a basket of goods in the background that they don't yet own. So they have to give you they have to give you a price, but they have to hedge themselves. They have to hedge their risk out in the back. There's lots and lots of ways they can do this, a uh, whole, whole different ways they can do this. And they rarely share specifics as to how they hedge. It's basically the special source to their business because they need to present a price, manage their own risk in an incredibly competitive market. We're talking about them fighting for every basis point there. So their quant teams keep the cards very close to their chest about how they do this. But we can get a general idea. I mean, if we talk about um, if we talk about these two ones in particular, an S and P five hundred ETF, for example, would be very easy to hedge. So, in the background, what would happen? They would show us a price, 
and their quants would go out and they could easily buy a single future in order to hedge that out. The futures market for the S&P 500 is massive. They could buy one that would perfectly align with what they're doing. And their goal, as I say, don't forget, is to always be uh, what they would call delta neutral as possible. So as close to the hedge of what they're of what they're trading with you, they want to be getting as close as possible, as cheap as possible. And doing that on something like this, buying that one future is a very effective way to do it. So, so James, what you're saying there, what the market makers are looking to do there is just make the money in that case on the difference between the S&P 500 ETF and the S&P 500 future. So a very, very small amount of money. And because it's often misconstrued that, you know, the dealers will just say, mm, maybe the market's going to go up or go down. They don't do that uh, to, to any significant extent because it's just way too risky. They, they're looking to make consistent money, aren't they? Of course. So it depends on a, on a market maker to market maker um, kind of basis. Some are happy to take on a little bit more risk than others. But you're right. In, in most cases, they want to be as risk neutral as possible. Um, so on something like this, this S&P 500, you'll find that actually the prices are pretty homogenous. They've mostly got the same strategy. And, and you'll find there may only be a, a, a tiny basis point in it here and there. In, in terms of your other example, before you go um, there, just terms, ju- can I just jump in? Just to, because some people will be thinking, so S and P five hundred future, how does that result in five hundred stocks going up? You know, all things being equal, <laughs> I mean the flows are immense. Um, so somebody will, someone, a firm like Goldman's, uh, Jane Street is a specialist in this area, aren't they? Uh, we're mentioning mm. just firms that happen to be involved because there's a wide range of investment banks. They will almost immediately using algorithms someone somewhere will buy all 500 stocks they have to so the future will go into all 500 stocks the future is exactly as james said is the super liquid instrument but it can't just stay there as a future all 500 stocks are are, are purchased immediately and that way you can see the difference that we set out last uh, last week that in contrast to going to an active fund the impact on the market is immediate isn't it james I mean, or if, if coots were the only flows, it's super unlikely that day, <laughs> the market would be driven up because it's immediate. The, the impact is greater than immediate. I mean, when you're, when you're pricing these up, quite often the market makers will have purchased these hedges before you even accepted the trade. So quite often you have to be quite careful. If you're asking around a few market makers at once, you can get what's called information leakage. And that's the case that... If you went around the market and said to everyone, I want to buy this, they'd all try and hedge it at once, all thinking that that's, you're going to do it with them. And then it would push the price of the futures up in the background and you get a worse price. So you have to be a little bit savvy uh, with, with how upfront you are about what you're doing. Cool, cool. So how about the second example? That's a tougher example, right? Exactly, exactly. So the second example, you know, we'd be looking at uh, European mid-cap stocks. Now, unlike the first, uh, the first one we looked at, there isn't kind of a natural pan-European mid-cap uh, future that would just perfectly fit that hedge. So what they would need to do instead is they would need to build out this hedge from a multitude of areas. You know, they can use maybe some futures in, in different markets, um, you know, in local markets, use some options on particular stocks. Um, buy some similar underlying equities and stocks immediately, even other ETFs sometimes. And what they'll tend to do is they'll have 
the quant's job in the background will be to put a patchwork of all these things together in order to replicate that hedge as closely as possible. As I say, they're trying to get delta ones. So they're trying to get the, the tightest hedge they can, and they may use a whole array of, uh, of of strategies to do this. And this is where you might see a bit more of a disparity between different market makers' prices, because some will have a better special source than others. The strategy that they use to hedge it you know, some of them can be quite obscure, <laughs> really mm. quite out there. Um, but that's where they that's where they make their buck and get their get their prices tighter. OK, that's brilliant. And, that's and, fascinating. And, oh, sorry. James. I was going to say an, an even more mm. um, extreme example of this might be if you're buying a, an ETF, which is based on bonds, for example. So this is going even further this way. I mean, there is no underlying derivatives market in bonds at all. Corporate mm. bonds are notoriously cumbersome to trade. So if you ask a market maker to, to buy you an ETF based on 100 different, different bonds, the way that they're going to do that is they're going to go out, they're going to have a spreadsheet of, say, 5,000 bonds, and the mm. quant is carefully going to put together a basket which closely resembles things like ca characteristics of your basket, like the risk profile, like the duration, things like this, mm. and they'll get it as close as possible. It's a very, very clever and very fast process that they will use in order to, to what they call optimize that as close as they can to what you're trying to do. It's incredibly clever. Yeah. It's stratified sampling. But again, the point, James, I think we agree, even though the, the second example, well, the bond example and the European small cap, even though it's more cumbersome, the impact is pretty immediate because that market maker is going out there. In the case of Euro in case of uh, bonds and European small caps, in many cases, buying direct stocks, buying baskets of direct stocks and direct bonds. So quite immediate and quite different from you know, putting some money into a very large bond fund where the fund manager may take some time and have discretion. Yeah. Okay. Of course. I mean, even though even though what you're trading might be a little bit more of a puzzle to piece together, it's still the fact that every single ETF that market maker trades, they will have that strategy in place for each one. Those strategies are already built. So as soon as you were to hit, uh, as soon as you were to hit them there, they would immediately be going into their pre-made strategy to do it. So you're quite right. It would be it would be instantaneous. Maybe again, you would even see the prices moving before you would even you'd even expect it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you very much, Dave. Now, do feel free to jump in if when Alan's talking, um, if, if there's anything you want to add, James. Um, so, Alan, next up then, which sort of follows on from this, because it, this was off the back of um, Francesca's original question about the impact of passive investing on, on markets. And you were saying that um, sort of, well, first of all, you've been arguing that we're going to see perhaps more active investing, but you were also arguing about the impact of passive investing on, on the narrowness that we're seeing in the S&P 500 at the moment. Just remind us of that. Yeah, so um, basically um, passive investing does not impact the narrowness of the market. It does everything that James and I were just talking about in terms of definitely contributing to surges or sell-offs, mm. but no, why? Just in simple terms, we take the S&P 500, you buy Microsoft, in exactly the correct weighting as the same as you buy General Motors, in yeah. exactly the correct weighting. So there's no bias either way. So completely wrong. Ironically, as I said before, you put money in a successful active fund, they're most likely to be growth orientated. 
you're mm. more likely to have a higher weight in the likes of Microsoft. I think we mentioned Fundsmith a, a really uh, last week, a really excellent global equity fund, which mm. one of, I think its very biggest holding is Microsoft. That is a good example. You put money into Fundsmith, you're more likely to see purchases, additional purchases of Microsoft. Of course, the fund manager has discretion and could even just let it add to cash. Yeah. But anyway, what's been happening uh, just as like, you know, last year, we, we we talked about how active investing has been so tough. The numbers yeah. have been terrible. The numbers are like this, for example, in the US over the last five years, basically 85 to 90 percent of managers underperform in, in US equities. And it's pretty poor everywhere. Whereas in bonds, it's more like 50 50. Mm. And we've been arguing it's time for equity management to get closer to 50 50. Um, unfortunately, um, the U.S. market in particular has been very narrow this year. Yeah. So we've mentioned um, ETFs. James, I'm sure you know this one, the equal weighted ETF. We've bought in, in the mm. S&P 500, we've bought it from, from time to time. Uh, that's underperforming. And uh, it's, it's less about the Magnificent Seven, but the famous five, because one yeah. of the Magnificent Seven, Tesla, is having a bit of a nightmare, down yes. about uh, 25 to 30%. Yeah. And Apple's going nowhere. Mm. Um, but the other five are powering through and once again driving the US stock market higher. What thoughts about that? Because one thing I saw uh, was that this sort of so-called sort of AI halo effect is, well, there's one thing. One is that the AI halo effect is maybe starting to wane a little bit and investors are now looking for actual tangible value connected with AI, not just that they throw AI around on a on an analyst call. And I and I wonder then, particularly with Tesla and Apple, if it's not clear how they're going to monetize AI, whereas we can see it with Microsoft um, and Meta and, and Amazon. Is that perhaps why we're seeing those five surge ahead and they're leave, not leaving behind Tesla and Apple, but they're doing less well? Yes, I think that's right to a certain extent. And to be fair, uh, earnings delivery. What do we talk about stocks? In the long run, it's all about earnings. The famous yeah. five are delivering on earnings. To be fair, Apple, through even though they haven't got the sales, through pretty good capital management, buybacks and, and the like, are, are, you know, are, are basically are, are delivering on earnings for share. But um, the likes of NVIDIA, Microsoft and Meta from, 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 the, from the doldrums are absolutely delivering on earnings and sales, actually. Yeah. So you're seeing it right here. So, you, so, Sarah, you are right. Built into the valuation of those stocks is, is an AI belief of the future. But to be fair, they're delivering on earnings right now. Yeah. So, I mean, look, so we're, we're wrong. We've been wrong before and we'll be wrong again. We're wrong as it speaks mm -hmm. today. Um, it's a very narrow index in the US. But what I want to say, there are some similarities with last year. It is, it is a broader global equity man uh, uh, rally. Sorry, Sarah. I, I, yeah. um, no, I, I, I was just going to I was going to say, before we move on, I was just going to say, and also what was interesting, because we've talked in the past about dividends versus buybacks, and Meta uh, are actually going to start issuing dividends, aren't they? Yeah, and the market took that really well, which was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> and um, yeah, um, so we talked a lot about dividends versus buybacks. I'm more in the buyback crowd, and, and we did a previous podcast about how the numbers were something like this, testing my memory. If you are lucky enough to own 1% Apple, 10 years ago, you now own about 1.6%. So you get, for, for, for long-term shareholders, you get to own more of the company, which is really nice. Having said that, 
it was a statement of a, a intent by um, Meta to to pay a dividend because that is a company that has been really criticised for being in the metaverse as opposed to back mm. to basics. And it's it's showing a bit of back to basics, but it was incredibly well taken when you consider that really dividends are not important in the US stock market. But yeah, you're right. Quite quite uh, quite an interesting development. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see if Apple does pay a dividend, but it'll be interesting to see if some of the other famous five start paying. Yeah. And also, I mean, you talked about a broadening and we have got, we're going a little bit beyond tech, aren't we now with the with the famous five or Magnificent Seven or whatever, it, we, because we've got, um, is it Eli Lilly, the healthcare company that's that's doing well at the moment, is, isn't it? Yes, um, there's, 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 a, there's a big theme out there, isn't there, in terms of anti-obesity drugs. Mm. Uh, we've got a great company here in, in Europe, of course, as well. So, yeah, th- that's been bid up to a premium. So you're quite right. So it's not just... The, the famous five. I, I keep wanting to say Magnificent Seven, the famous five in the States. Mm-hmm. But I was going to reference more broader. Once again, Japan's doing well, yeah. up 8%, and, and value investing is broadly working there. Europe's up 3.5%. Uh, the UK market is soggy. So the global equity market year to date, you know, we're humans, we think in year to date, is, is a little bit broader than you might think if you're just looking at the United States. Yeah, and also I think have we not are we not getting signals out of Japan that they might be finally stopping their negative interest rate policy as well? Yeah, well, right, we've yeah. said that before. Yeah, um, looking forward to that because um, normalisation definitely needed. Um, yeah, so absolutely. All right, well, let's broaden it out from the Magnificent Seven. I keep calling them Magnificent Seven, Famous Five, Fantastic Five, whatever we want to call them. To the subject, your third subject, which was U.S. resilience. This, yeah, well, because we don't normally talk about the data. We don't talk about the data anymore because not everybody listens to the podcast the week it comes out. But it was another biggie, wasn't it? Yeah, because I listened to podcasts late. James listened to podcasts incredibly late. Black Barbara, <laughs> and, and, and because you're an economist, I'm going to make you, to, uh, you know, comment on this, James. Uh, yeah, you, you need you need to be a bit more update with your podcasts. Um, so, yeah, look. Um, we, I'll try to make it a little bit broader, but we had non-farm payrolls, the employment report in the United States. And for example, one economist, the economist of Jeffrey, said he was speechless. You're not going to catch me speechless, Sarah. Uh, but speechless, <laughs> it was that <laughs> strong. Yeah, yeah, it was that strong in the state. In the states, hold on, I'm going to I'm going to pull it up mm. now. Um, I think it but, was it almost double some expectations, wasn't it? It was. And, um, you know, I've talked before about revision, the importance of revisions, because, you know, uh, economists like James, because he's a professional economist, can be rubbish (laughs) at at, uh, coming up with the data. Um, And but revisions are very important because obviously revisions are more accurate. So not only did we have an absolute blowout um, non-farm payroll, uh, we call it non-farm payroll, basically just think employment gain, but the revisions were up circa 130,000. We had strong wages data. And um, I mean, this is against the background. I mean, this is the intriguing thing. So the US economy performed pretty well last year, two and a half percent. This kind of number is beyond that. But um, a couple of points. One, I, I don't know, James, if you can explain it. Consumer sentiment. Everything's pretty strong in the United States, except for consumer sentiment. I mean, it's in the door. It's, 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 it's kind of in 07, 09 financial crisis type levels. And um, I've been looking into this. The Brookings Institute, one of these um, think tanks, has uh, has does uh, has a kind of an index of new sentiment. 
and news sentiment. We've talked about this before, haven't we, Sarah? Sarah bad news, news we sentiment. Have. You can you can track it. You, know, you can track nearly everything in the states. That's at really low levels. And when interviewed, um, so for example, the Economist uh, does a weekly survey of uh, fifteen hundred um, individuals in in the states. You know, on a, on a you know, so very useful on a weekly basis. And again, very pessimistic. And two thirds of them disapproved of Biden's handle handling of the economy. I mean, the guy can't get a break. I mean, no. two and a half percent growth, inflation falling, blowout mm. employment reports. Can you explain that, James? And you can tell this is not scripted because we did not <laughs> warn James at all. We've completely promised one. But as soon as he told me he had an economics degree, I, I'm going straight oh, for the kill. No. <laughs> that's fine well i guess i guess there's two there's two main areas of sentiment isn't there there's there's wall street where everyone's talking about the several bull traps there were last year everyone talking about these these false rallies that never turned out to anything last year so i think people are naturally a little bit skeptical on asset prices but in terms of what you're talking about alan the main street uh kind of talking to the talking to the people in the road about about how they feel about the future uh it's difficult to tell i think pe- things like Price inflation of goods in the shops are the kind of things that stick in people's mind for a long time. It can it can very much be the case that you see in the news coming out that there's uh, that there's all sorts of great data about about payroll, as you say, and things like that. But the fact of the matter is, if you're going to the grocery store in the U.S., you see the bread you were buying only a couple of months ago is double the price. You know the prices are still you know way ahead um, of the uh, of the wages catching up. I think people are still very, very bitter about looking at that kind of thing. And it might be a while before people start to get used to this, this new level of pricing that they're not used to. I think that's why people still have this kind of, uh, have this kind of irritation, particularly with, with um, the way the economy has been managed and Biden and things like this. You're quite right. You know, the inflation, the inflation rate is coming down and coming down uh, very nicely. Um, the plan appears to be working pretty well, but it's still the fact of the matter that you have to look at that that loaf of bread in the shop and think, hmm, that doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, I think that's fair, don't you, Sarah? I think that's a good analysis. Mm. I think I think it is. I think mm. if I put it in economics terms, the memory of inflation, even though inflation's come down, the memory of inflation. And it sounds like you shopping Gales, you know, for bread to double, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you've obviously got a large wallet and go there to buy your bread. But um, I think that's right. So, I mean, look, the really other aspect is, Sarah, you may remember last year, the pessimism about the economy and the inverted yield curve argument, yes, which has worked brilliantly well in the past, an economic downturn. And that, that was you know, a good reason to be pessimistic because it has worked mm-hmm. re- very well. And you and I had um, Anatole Kaleski in, do you remember? We did, uh, yes. Well, not on the podcast. We should get him on the podcast. We should get him on the he podcast, was in the kid's yeah. office. He yeah. was in the kid's office. And he basically told us, why are you, of all people in Britain, looking at this inverted yield curve when it's never worked in Britain? Okay, yes, it has worked in the States, but he's been right this time. Well, you know, touch wood, at least to this date, it hasn't worked. So the bottom line is, what does it all mean? Um, rate cuts. Jay Powell did this amazing pivot in December, yeah, uh, mm. l- last December. Um, they're not coming in March now. Absolutely no. not. Uh I'll 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 eat a, a cake hat if if they cut rates in March now. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. not coming. And um 
still rate cuts coming, um, but maybe a bit less than previously thought mm. and a bit later than previously thought. I'm, I'm seeing the sort of baseline scenario is three cuts. That's what I think what, that's what the Fed are looking at. If we look at the dot plot, James, you want to say something? Just looking at what's priced in in the market, because obviously we can look at uh, we can look at the futures curve there. It does look like, I mean, it has been sliding out and sliding out, but it does look like um, most of the most of the traders are expecting it in sort of quarter three, quarter four this year to begin now. When that has slid out from quarter four last year to the beginning mm. of this year, it is going to be in the second half of this year is what's expected. Um, looking at looking at getting down to around in this country around three and a half percent in about two years' time, and then that will be sort of the new the new floor certainly in the in the short to medium term that's expected. Yeah, I guess the challenge is going to be Alan is if we've got if the Fed is thinking they're going to do one thing and they're going to stick to their guns, markets are potentially seeing more cuts. We're just going to get this ongoing volatility this year, aren't we? Every time we get close to a next the next Fed meeting, there's going to be more market volatility, do we think? I, th- I think so. Um, and uh, yeah, James is quite right. And in the United States, they're still predicting five cuts, five um, 25 bits cuts by the end of the year, but later. Um, but we talked before, the big difference is what's, what's mathematically priced into the bond market mm. and what risk assets like equities and high yield may do. That's a judgment call. Um, and uh, famous theories will come out from us amongst others. So, um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the bond market, a little, where it's directly priced in, a bit more volatility. And and um, well, let's see. Maybe this non-farm payroll was a one-off. Um, I doubt it because of the revisions. The revisions yeah. were so strong, and the revisions are real. Um, but um, the U.S. economy is certainly proving to be very, very resilient. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. So to sum up, then we're we're still seeing this ongoing resilience in the U.S. economy, as you said. Fantastic jobs report um, the week before we recorded this. However, there is still that one element of consumer sentiment, which is still very pessimistic. And we've talked about this over a couple of recent podcasts. You know, the the trend for news to be more and more negative. Um, And as, as James actually gave a good example, maybe some of that consumer sentiment, that negativity, is because when you go to the supermarket. Um, and you're buying your usual basket of goods, you can see the, the fact that those prices have not come down yet. You might be told that inflation's coming down, but you're not seeing it in your day-to-day life. And that's perhaps where that, that pessimism comes from. Well, uh, a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are not intended to constitute investment advice, are accurate at the time of recording and are subject to change. Thank you very much, Alan and James, for joining us. For a very short notice to come and give us a, the, the 101 on... Um, on trading which is fascinating um and thank you for listening and for all your comments and suggestions and feedback it's all very welcome even when we you tell us we've done something wrong you know it's good to know um we'll be back with more need to know next week until then bye for now